Gatsby is the fastest front end for the headless web. If your goal is building highly performant, content-rich websites, you need to build with Gatsby. Go to gatsby.dev slash stackoverflow to launch your first Gatsby site in minutes and experience the speed. That's gatsby.dev slash stackoverflow. Head on over, use that link, you'll let them know we sent you and help out the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Stack Overflow podcast, a place to talk all things software and technology. I am Ben Popper, Director of Content here at Stack Overflow, joined as I often am by my wonderful colleagues and co-hosts, Cassidy Williams and Matt Kiernander. Hey, y'all. Hello. Hello. So we're going to have a fun conversation today. We're chatting with a serial entrepreneur, Varun Ganapathy. He is the CTO and co-founder of a company called Akasa. He has created and sold a few other companies and he's deep into the world of machine learning, which is involved in so much of what goes on in the software industry these days. His particular focus is trying to use it to fix healthcare, which as an American, the system has felt very broken to me for oh. many years. So I'm interested to hear what he's trying to do. Varun, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So we usually ask people to start off by just telling us a little bit, you know, like how'd you get into the world of software and technology? Sure. It started a very long time ago. Uh, I was born in India. We went to Kuwait when I was a young kid. And then when I was four, we came to America. My dad started a computer rental company. It was called Terminal Exchange. Uh, they rent terminals, like the old school you wow. know, BT-100 terminals. But by that time, it was like early 90s. Um, it obviously transitioned to renting like desktops and PCs and other types of computers. And so every time he had a computer, he couldn't rent that computer would sometimes come to the house, right? And so I would just have random computers like that would just show up. And, you know, I was five or something and I would just start playing with them, right? Because they were there and like, it's not like we could afford to buy those computers, but, you know, since they were part of his business and they were just like not being used, I would get them. And what was kind of cool is they would often have software on them that like I definitely could not buy, but, you know, would just be on them from like whoever was there before, it was like cleared out or whatever. And so I learned to use all sorts of cool programs like Macromedia Director and uh, Basic mm. and lots of things like that. And so I started programming in Basic probably in first grade, maybe second grade. I, I went to the library. I remember I got a book called Basic for Kids <laughs> and I just started making little programs like quizzes or games or whatever. I My friends had Nintendo and I didn't have a Nintendo. And so one of the things that always motivated me was man, I can't, I don't have like a Nintendo, but maybe I can just make my own games and then I can just play them and that'll be fun. <laughs> and so that's how I got started learning how to program I just like wanted to make games. Probably that's a story for a lot of people, actually. You know, that was just like an ongoing thing. As the internet happened, I learned how to program JavaScript. Like I had a few clients for a web development when I was in seventh grade or whatever. So I, I built a few websites for people. Can I find those on the internet archive? Can we check out some of your work? I'll put them in the show notes. <laughs> I'll try to, you know, it's funny. I never thought about that. I'll try to find it. I think, yeah. And I remember I was being super fascinated about JavaScript back when I was pretty young and how we could do image rollovers. This is like a huge thing with Netscape Navigator. You know, you could move your mouse mm. over an image and it would flip over. Anyways, this was very cool back in the day. And so I learned JavaScript because I wanted to do that feature. That was sort of like um, before I got to high school. And then in high school, I just, you know, tried to be a normal like student, you know, in Boston, like computers, where I went to school, computers weren't really cool. It was just sort of a secret <laughs> thing that I didn't tell anyone about. It was just my own thing. Nowadays, <laughs> it's a, obviously much cooler to be into computers. But back then, you know, it was like a dirty secret, basically. 
So then I went to Stanford uh, University, and there I decided to actually, I was initially double majoring in computer science and physics, but then, you know, I was thinking about, it, it's weird, my feelings about computer science have been, you know, I've been doing it programming for fun for a long time. I viewed it as a tool, but not actually as an academic discipline. You know, it was kind of funny. I just thought it was like a thing you did to do something else. It wasn't like a purpose in and of itself. And so, mm. and the other thing I thought, and this is kind of funny because I've completely switched my opinion, but back then this is what I thought is physics is real. The physical world is a real thing that is true. And computers are things humans have created, right? Like we created the languages, we created all of these constructs and it's sort of man-made and, you know, I wasn't super sophisticated about algorithms and understanding like all the mathematics behind computers. So, you know, that's kind of what I thought at that time. So I, I decided, you know, I was going to really become good at physics and I wanted to really learn about it. And I'd always been motivated by just understanding how things work. I just wanted to know how everything works. And so majored in physics, but then I started, I was also very curious about the, how the human mind works and how intelligence works. And that's when I got drawn back into computer science and artificial intelligence because, you know, after majoring physics, I said, you know, I understand a lot of the physical laws of the world, but like the brain is something that we have no idea how it works and how, like how intelligence occurs. And so I thought maybe I should try to figure that out. Like, how do we figure out how to create intelligence? And so I started taking a lot of AI classes at Stanford. I worked with Andrew Ring. Like he was my first advisor wow. in AI when I was a junior at Stanford. It was, he was great. Um, we built there's a video he created about, you know, he's videotaping a helicopter and it looks like it's flying upright. And then he flips over the camera. It turns out the helicopter is actually hovering upside down. I was fortunate enough to work on that project. So I built the physics simulator for it. So this was like the bridge moment where I was like bridging from physics to machine learning and AI. And so I built the physics simulator for that helicopter. And then we trained a reinforcement learning algorithm on the simulator. And what was really amazing is this is a summer project. We just transferred the algorithm that we had trained on simulation to the real helicopter and it worked like on the first try, which was crazy. Like that like never happens. <laughs> and the thing is, unlike other code, if it didn't work, it probably would have crashed and that would have taken a long time to fix because the helicopter would have just, you know, broken. But fortunately it worked. And, and you know, we had tested it a lot in simulation beforehand. I had someone use a joystick to fly the simulated helicopter to confirm it was real. Oh, and by the way, I should mention, this is not a full-size helicopter. It's probably like one and a half meters long. That this makes a significant yeah. difference. I always forget to say that. It's it's like a radio controlled <laughs> helicopter, not like, you know, okay, like a drone it. basically, but like a very big drone, like one and a half meters long. Yeah, it sounds a lot more exciting. Yeah, if there was a pilot <laughs> yeah, it's always in it. <laughs> you were yeah. all standing right next to a big helicopter. Got it. Oh yeah, drone. that would be... <laughs> Much more risky. Yes. Yeah. We did still stay a very long distance away from it though, because... I mean, anything could happen, right? But that was back in 2003. And that, were, that was because before drones were, I think, a thing. I don't know. I don't. I never had seen drones commonly before that. And so oh, that yeah, was... way before. 2013 is when DJI released their first like little phantom drone that was super easy to fly. And that's like when they started taking off. So ah. you were 10 years ahead of the curve on the, like <laughs> consumer drones just exploding into something you might put in your back. Uh, yeah, I, it was definitely, it was cutting edge at the time, I thought. And, and what was hard about it actually was that because it was a helicopter with a single rotor, it's sort of a lot harder to actually fly than a four blade helicopter because a four blade quadcopter or like which the drones are based on for various reasons. And so yeah, that was a really awesome project. And then I got ex extremely excited about machine learning because that was really fun. I was also very happy that I could use my physics knowledge in that project because when we were building the physics simulator, I actually could 
blend ML and physics because the model was physically derived, but the parameters of the model were trained by machine learning. So it actually would use real data of the helicopter flying and it adjusted those parameters to make the simulated helicopter behave like the real one so that when we trained on it, it would actually be realistic. And so that was the bridge moment. That's when I got very excited about machine learning. I was walking down the street on University Ave and I saw a car that said Googler on it, like on the license plate. The license plate said Googler. You know, this guy came out of it and I just walked up to him and I said, you know, I really want to work at Google. Like, I'm very excited about machine learning. Like, can I get a job at Google? And it turned out to be Jeff Dean. And he said, sure, like, just email me at like jeff at google.com. And I had no idea who he was or anything. And this was back in, you know, summer of 2003. And so I just emailed him my resume. And then I got a job at Google. And I worked there the following school year, uh, just during, I like decided that next quarter, I basically worked at Google and took classes at Stanford at the same time. But that was a really awesome project where I got way more excited about machine learning and computer science more generally. And that's sort of what started my complete switch into that and the helicopter project and taking a class for Daphne Kohler at Stanford at that time. I took this really great class um, called Probabilistic Graphical Models that she taught. And you know, I was taking it at the same time as I was taking statistical mechanics. And it was just so cool how the ideas from physics about entropy manifest as entropy in like the information theory sense in machine learning. And so for me, it was like a mind-blowing quarter where everything sort of came together. And I was like, oh, these icing models we're using in physics are actually what they use to create Markov random fields in AI. And so everything came together. And I was like, okay, cool. Like I'm going to do a PhD in, in artificial intelligence. And so that was sort of how I went from physics to AI in a very long yeah. story. Yeah, you like stumbled upon some of the biggest names in AI. For those who don't know those names, Andrew Ng, he like you can find a bunch of free courses on artificial intelligence because he made them. He's very very big in the AI space. Jeff Dean, I think he runs Google AI. Big deal. Yeah. And then Daphne <laughs> Kohler, she, I think she works in the Stanford AI lab, and she founded Coursera. Coursera, and then. And then also now uh, in Citro. Anyway, lots of very big names to stumble upon and learn from. Yeah, I mean, not to add well, the last name, I would say also very influential is uh, during that helicopter project, we went to DC to demo it for like a grant. And uh, Sebastian Thron was there as well. And so, you know, I met him for the first time and he and Daphne ended up being my PhD advisors at Stanford. So Sebastian Thron from the DARPA Grand Challenge and he started Udacity. So yeah, I, I got extremely lucky to be at the right place at the right time and just met all these awesome people and learned from them. That's incredible. We just did a, yeah, sort of this amazing collision of things where physics and machine learning came together. You happened to be in Stanford and Silicon Valley when a lot of these big names were figuring out kind of what they wanted to work on. And we were getting to that tipping point where ideas about AI that had been kind of dormant for a long time were beginning to come to life again, thanks to the amount of sort of processing power and you went from there to create a couple of companies. Can we touch on those briefly, like the origin of each and, and why you decided to sell them, I guess, and move on? And then we can transition to what you're doing these days. Okay. So yeah, so I worked at Google on the Google print project where they were scanning all the world's books and um, I used machine learning to help automate that process of reading the pages, extracting table of contents, things like that. So that got me very interested in computer vision. When I went back to Stanford to do my PhD, I focused a lot on machine learning theory and computer vision. And my PhD thesis with Daphne and Sebastian was on real-time motion capture from depth cameras. So what I wanted to build was a camera. Uh, and this is a funny story. I was like, I want to learn how to dance. So I was like, maybe I could make a computer program that would you know, record how people 
do various moves and then, you know, teach other people how to do that because they could watch you sort of like dance, dance revolution on the connect way before, like in, you know, in 2008. <laughs> and so that was my PhD thesis was how to build that. It, you know, it was funny when I started the project, these depth sensors cost $5,000. And so people have been trying to do things with computer vision, with RGB cameras for a long time. And, and now it's finally working, but back then People had just tried for a long time and there were some limitations, like you just couldn't break through certain boundaries. And so, you know, there were these cameras that basically will measure not only color, but um, distance to an object using, you know, time of flight of light. And so I used that sensor and it was very noisy data, very low resolution to try to build an algorithm that would in real time be able to detect a person's motion in front of a camera and use it to do other things. And so I started working on that. And as I mentioned this was like in 2009, 2008. And what happened was that essentially I thought to myself, when I build these algorithms, eventually these sensors will become cheap. And then these algorithms will be really useful. I did not anticipate how quickly that would occur. <laughs> Literally a year later, the sensor went from being $5,000 to $50, like bill of materials. And then Microsoft announced they were going to use it for the Xbox Connect to build a system that you could, you know, interact with the computer we decided to found a company based on the technology on how do we commercialize it. And this is before you know anything had come out yet. And so we started a company, it was called Numovis. And we started to go raise money. We went to maybe like two VCs, you know, had a Series A offer. And we also had a presentation at Google where we wanted to have them be a partner. We thought, you know, they could use this technology to power some product. And we sort of did our demo. And then at the end of the conversation, they just said, would you like to be part of Google? Oh, well. <laughs> and so, you know, it was me it. and <laughs> three other founders from uh, three other people from the lab. And, you know, it was a tough decision to answer your question. I mean, we I literally was still a PhD student at Stanford, right? And I just founded the company. Yeah, I think I just left or, or like was in the boundary of leaving. And the other founders were just said, let's just do this. It's like extremely low risk, it's a, a very big return for a very small amount of time spent. And PhD students make $35,000 a year. And so, you know, it was quite a in jump. Up in, yeah. <laughs> so it was quite a big jump in uh, standard of living from that. And so we decided to take the offer. I was always a little conflicted, to be honest, but the other three people really wanted to do it. And so we, we did it. And so that's how that company ended up getting sold. I also started another mini company during my PhD. I wouldn't call it a company. It was really more of a hobby. I was really into computational photography. So a friend and I wrote an iPhone app called Pro HDR. It was, I think, one of the first, if not the first HDR app for the iPhone, or maybe it was within a month of the first app to come out. And we basically thought to ourselves, how do we take computational photography techniques and just put them onto the phone? Because now phones, cameras, and the internet had all combined into one. And so we thought we could take these algorithms that people normally have to run offline after they take the pictures and just put them on the phone. And so we built an algorithm that would take two pictures or three pictures very rapidly and then blend them together into one. It's called high dynamic range photography. And this was before it existed at all. Now it's a feature on every iPhone and I think every Android even. Um, but back then this was 2009, December, 2010, it like had not existed yet. So you take like three pictures and the one where my eyes are open is <laughs> the one you use along with the one where my hand, you know, looks... <laughs> Is that how, is that what you're talking about? Sort of, sort of. You're exactly right. And you could do that with the technology, but the general common use case is a lot of situations will have something that's very bright and then something that's a lot darker. So for instance, if you're standing in front of a sunset, the background will be a lot brighter than the foreground. And so what you can do is 
what will happen normally is if you take a normal picture, you'll either say, I'm going to expose the, the picture such that the foreground or the darker object subjects are well lit, but then you're going to have completely white outed uh, background. Like essentially everything that's bright will be completely like no detail. It'll just be white. Right. Or you could do the reverse. The things that are bright will be well exposed, but the things that are dark will just like be like, you just can't see them at all. And so what it does is it just takes both of those pictures, the dark one and the light one, aligns them very rapidly together because you're doing this with your hand moving. And that's the hard part is like your hands are moving as you take the picture. It seems like not a big deal, but the slight vibration of your hand moving will cause like a lot of ghosting if you just take the two pictures and just directly blend them. So you align the two pictures very rapidly and then you do what's called um, tone mapping. You basically can produce one pixel for every pixel in the, in the image where it chooses the best one, essentially. It's like it chooses the better exposed source in order to produce the result. And so it lets you actually have one picture that has everything well exposed. It looks a little artificial because it is, but it also a lot of people like the effect and it looks cool. And so th that's basically what HDR is. And that's what the app did back then. Basically, every time you've tried to take a nice photo of you against the sunset and it's either yeah. you look really nice and exposed and it's just a pure white sky behind you. That is one of the aspects in which this yeah. solves, correct? Yes, exactly. And any other situation like that. Windows, if you're in a house and you're taking a real estate photograph and there's a window open and it's daytime, right. you'll have exactly the same problem. You know, anytime where there are objects that are very different brightnesses. So we started that company. So that was all before I went to Google, was a research scientist Google for a couple of years, worked on um, AI there. And I, I learned a lot from the people there as well about computer vision and a lot of things and how to do large scale distributed computing. So I decided to start another company. This time, my goal was really to build, build an extremely easy way to get started in machine learning or computer science in the cloud. So the idea is that instead of having to install a bunch of stuff on your computer, get it all working, which can often sour the experience, it would be a website where you could literally create a snapshot of a working environment and share it with someone. And then they could just start it up and it would just be running in your browser. The website was called terminal.com, which I got from my dad from the terminal exchange systems, old, oh, you know, that wow. company. So that, that thread emerged. The funny thing is it was a terminal in some sense, like you were just getting access to a machine in the cloud, right? And so it was just using the browser as a terminal. So that's why it was called that. What I ended up doing is it was the main focus was education, which one thing I learned is like it was a decent market, but it was not like a huge market, right? But my purpose was really like I was just excited in teaching people. My goal was just to make it easier to learn how to program. And so that company ended up it ended up being used by a lot of different education companies like or Stanford used it for their deep learning class because you could get a GPU in the cloud really easily. It was sort of like Colab. If you've seen the Google product, colab.research.google.com, it was like that, but before that. And so we started, you know, I built that company. And at some point during it, I realized I was spending a lot of time not doing AI, which is the thing I was actually excited about. You know, I was helping other people do AI, but I myself was not doing any AI or machine learning, right? I was like creating infrastructure to allow it to be good. Well, we created our own notion of containers where you could, you know, create snapshots of, of working environments and so on. And ultimately, I decided, let me just sell this company and I can go focus on machine learning, which is the thing I was actually passionate about. And so while I was running that company, I, you know, I'd seen all these advancements in deep learning. And a lot of things that were in my PhD hard to do were now was now becoming a lot easier to do. So when I was a PhD <laughs> student, implementing gradient descent for a complex model was not an easy feat. Like you had to write the gradient yourself by hand like and actually test it. You have to implement all of the things that are now completely automated. So you know, a lot of these modern deep learning packages like PyTorch and TensorFlow, one of the key selling points is 
auto differentiation. You can just feed it the objective function, right? The thing you want to optimize, and it will calculate the slope and, and give that to you. And then you can use that to optimize your, your model. Back in my PhD, this was like very, like you had to write it by hand. It was very difficult and it took a long time. But now it was possible to do all of these things a lot quicker. So basically, I started thinking to myself, I want to do something with AI that will make the world better. And I thought healthcare is something that really could use a lot of improvement. And so I sold the company to Udacity and I started gestating this new idea of like, how can I make healthcare better? And, you know, a lot of companies had started in like radiology and like clinical stuff. And I thought to myself, like, no one is addressing this other problem. You hear about all these doctors with burnout and all of this administrative work that they have to do, like all of this paperwork. And I thought back to my Google print days and like, could we automate all of that paperwork? Like, could we have AI just like take care of it so no one has to deal with it? And no patient gets a surprise bill because there's some error that occurs. And that was sort of the idea. Like, that's the company we decided to start with, Acasa. It's like, use machine learning and AI to automate all of the boring stuff in healthcare. Uh, so doctors and caregivers can focus on delivering care rather than paperwork. So that's sort of how I got from uh, there to here. What a journey you've had. That's a, yeah, such that's a wild really story. cool products and companies and stuff that you've been able to work on and then just cool people to meet too. That's amazing. Yeah, I was going to ask who's going to play you in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of web developers out there who are curious about AI and machine learning, but to them it's kind of like, it's I guess kind of like blockchain. It's a technology that they know and are somewhat familiar with but haven't actually gotten the chance to understand what it is to actually develop with AI and machine learning. So I'm very curious, can you describe for other developers out there who may not be familiar with what it takes to develop with AI or machine learning, what that kind of process is and what you'd recommend to kind of get up and running within that space? That's a great question. The first decision to be made is, do you want to build your own models and actually get really deep into it? Or do you want to use AI and machine learning as a technology that you apply to whatever your domain is, right? And Based on that decision, I would recommend different approaches. So if it's an application, which is which is reasonable, there's a lot of things that already are possible and like we can just take advantage of them. So from that fork of I want to use it as an application, first think about what are all the things you've seen people do with AI? So there's a lot of computer vision stuff, right? Like we can now detect people extremely easily. You know, optical character recognition is like very well solved. We can detect objects really easily and so on. And then there's also audio, right? Like voice recognition is now essentially like is like a lot better than it used to be and works really well. You know, basically pick the domain and say, these are all the things. Those are all the detection and recognition applications. And then there's generation. Like you've seen things like Dolly, you know, where they can generate images automatically from typing in sentences and so on. So I would say like figure out, like look at the applications you've seen people do something with and then think to yourself, like what? If you want to make your own app, like think about what cool app could I build that leverages those technologies, right? And then probably find an API that you can just call uh, that turns it into a service or into an easy thing that you can embed into the browser that you can try it out. You know, it also depends if you're doing mobile or web. If it's mobile, there's also a lot of SDKs that um, Apple has and, and Google has and so on for, for running it locally or in the browser. So, or if it's as a service. And I think that's kind of how I would approach it. If you want to learn how to actually do the models, which of course, I recommend because I think it's a lot of the time there's a model that doesn't quite do exactly what you want. You can just take it and adapt it to make it do solve the problem you're actually interested in. I would recommend taking an online course in deep learning, uh, actually. And a lot of them make it extremely easy. Now, you know, at Udacity, you can just get an uh, instance in the cloud, like as part of the course where everything will be set up for you. 
and you can just start learning. Uh, Coursera also has courses. What yeah. a world, yeah. man. Take an online course and just get some deep learning instances in the cloud spun up. Exactly. That's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. And uh, yeah. I would say learn how the models work. If you're serious about it, I think people underestimate this part, but I think just re-remember multivariable calculus if you ever took it. Like what is a like the number one thing you need to know is a multi Just remember that good old multivariable calculus. <laughs> okay. You only need the first semester of it. Like you don't need to know the integral part, just the gradients. Like be able to, you know, understand like what is a gradient in multiple dimensions? Like what does that mean? If you can really internalize that, everything else follows almost. It's like Everything else is just applying that to all of these models that exist. It's a long road. It's not easy, but I think it's a very rewarding road to go down because this technology is only going to become more and more prevalent, right? And so learning it now is probably a good idea, I would say. Yeah, it's interesting the way you say, like, you know, take one of these, especially ones that, yeah, are out there with an easy tutorial and some of these established tools and then apply it to your scenario. My favorite one that I ever saw, and this was a while back, you probably easier to do now, was a guy who went and visited his mother and father, or maybe his grandparents on a rural farm in Japan, and they had a cucumber farm. And he trained this like AI model to sort the cucumbers as they rolled past and like push the little ones over here and push the big ones over there. And it was just like, it was very simple, but for them, it was like really amazing that, you know, this thing that they did every day where they manually sorted the cucumbers could be automated. So I thought that was kind of a fun one. And like you said, figure out where it fits in your life and use that as a practical way to learn about it. All right, everybody. It is that time of the show. I'm going to shout out the winner of a lifeboat badge, someone who came on Stack Overflow and saved a question with a negative score, gave it a great answer, and now it has a positive score. Awarded 15 hours ago to John Wu, hopefully same John Wu who directed Face Off and other amazing (laughs) action films. Yeah, I bet it's the same one. It's the same guy, right? He's an amazing programmer. Update the row that has the current highest maximum value of one field. How do you do it? John Wu has the answer. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening. I am Ben Popper, Director of Content here at Stack Overflow. If you want to send us a question or suggestion, hit us up. It's podcast at Stack Overflow. And if you like the show, why don't you leave us a rating and a review? We're always listening. I got an email just the other day from Ellen. She wanted to say, really enjoyed the episode about Flipping the interview questions. Cassidy, you were on that one, right? Maybe Matt I think too. I was. Flipping the interview questions and Thanks, interviewing Ellen. the interviewer. She liked that one. Oh, and no cold opens. So another vote for no cold opens. They're not coming back. It's three to nothing. <laughs> no cold opens. That being said, I've been Cassidy Williams. You can find me at Cassidy, C A S S I D O O, on most things. I do developer experience at Remote and OSS Capital. I'm Matt Kiananda. I'm a developer advocate here at Stack Overflow. You can find me online, YouTube, and Twitter at Matt Kander, M-A-T-T-K-A-N-D-E-R. I'm Varun Ganapathy, CTO co-founder at Akasa. We are hiring for all sorts of engineering roles. You know, you may have heard of tech freezes. We are not freezing our hiring. We are really looking for people. So if you're looking for a job, please head to akasa.com slash jobs. And you can find me on LinkedIn. That's probably the primary place that I, that I am. So if you want to message me, feel free to message me there or connect. And thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, thanks for coming on. It was a fascinating journey you had. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening as always. And we will talk to you soon. Bye. Thanks. Bye.